yesterday I mentioned that Jimmy had afforded the text for his own funeral service, although he didn't know it, uh, and I didn't know it at the time, but I remembered distinctly what uh, Jimmy had uh, commented when I made a reference to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 1. It speaks of a good name. It's uh, better than precious ointment. And uh, then in the very same sentence that the day of one's death is better than the day of their birth. And of course he realized that could only be understood by one who was in Christ, saved by God's wondrous grace. And uh, <clears throat> that's because there is a name above all names. And that's the name of our blessed Savior. We read Peter this morning that salvation is not to be found in any other name, only in that of our blessed Savior. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. The message yesterday was very simple, designedly so, because those who are there, they haven't received, nor do they study the scriptures like you do. And so the seed that was given forth and, and the illustration, the great illustration that the Lord himself declared he fulfilled of uh, the serpent that Moses lifted up in the serpent afforded uh, a gospel seed to go forth. So pray that uh, God would be pleased to use his word. Um, chapter 1, Joseph hears an angel tell him, that the Lord's name, the one to be born to Mary, uh, whom he had found out was with child and yet uh, was awfully concerned because they weren't yet consummate. Their marriage had not yet been consummated. And, uh, of course, he thought something rather immoral had taken place, but it had not, and the angel had gone through him informs Joseph that whole thing which is in her uh, is, is God's son. He's the son of God. She is pure. She is a virgin. And uh, he tells him his name shall be called Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And uh, so this morning I want to consider the name Jesus. Is there a tremendous message in a name? <laughs> Indeed there is. Jesus is the personal name of our Lord. Christ, of course, is his title, the Messiah, whom God had sent into the world, chosen by God, anointed by him uh, to be the Savior. And uh, so... Uh, Jesus is the Christ we read of in the scriptures identified as the Christ so but we want to consider the personal name of our Lord Jesus that's the name by which he is most often called in the gospels because we are beholding in the gospels one who was made flesh one who came into this world in human nature, just like ours, excepting, of course, we know no sin in him. And uh, he became bone of our bone, 
flesh of our flesh. In his name, we know that God the Father has exalted above every name, having accomplished the work of redemption. His name is above every other name and shall be indeed forever. The name Jesus is above every other name. So that to us who have been uh, who have more than learned the meaning of his name, yea, to us who have experienced the blessedness of his redeeming love, his name is as ointment poured forth. Blessed, sweeter, more delightful to us than any other name. Joseph, as Mary before him, was given the name by which our Lord was to be called when he was born. The name which is his still shall be his throughout all eternity. But he, Jesus, called Christ, was also said by the angel to have another name. The angel told Joseph, that, that other name was the one derived, of course, from the Old Testament seven centuries before in the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, the distinct meaning of the name given. God. Multiple names could not describe the full glory of the person of our blessed Savior. We cannot, it is not possible for us, to discern the glory of his person, the beauty of his character. I think we shall be discovering that for all eternity. Paul could speak of the unsearchable riches that are in Christ. That means Riches that cannot be completely traced out by us. We can't find the end of them. To us, to whom, as Isaiah wrote, a child is born, a son is given. The meaning of his name, Jesus. The glory of knowing him as our Savior is more precious to us expensive ointment like that broken by a dear woman who wanted him to have her best. Sweeter indeed than honey and the honeycomb. We who have tasted and found that the Lord is gracious. There is no name that touches our ears or enters our heart that could rightly be compared to the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. The name above every name. What a blessed consideration it should be to us who are His to consider this one glorious truth, the meaning of His name. It has an inexhaustible meaning, actually. And uh, with all 
of the felt limitation of considering him who is so glorious and so blessed and precious in our eyes. He also, as we learn in the book of Revelation, has a name written, no man knoweth but he himself. That means there is that about him which we could not discover. That only could be understood by God. And of course, only God fully knows God. God the Father fully knows the Son. The Son knows the Father. In a way none other could. And so, he has a name that no man knows, but he himself. And there's nothing more blessed to think upon, to ponder, to take to heart with the highest of reverence and the deepest of thought that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world and that believing we have life through His name. So, we consider the name. The name of him who alone fulfills its meaning. When God gives a name in Scripture, it's not simply that he took a book like we do, maybe when we have a little baby born and we begin looking saying, well, I like the name Joseph or I like the name John or I like the name Daniel and we'll just name them that or or Lydia, like the name, good biblical name, whatever. No, that's not the way God does it. When God gave a name, it was descriptive of the character. That's something that took place even with Adam and creation when he named the animals. <laughs> he named them according to their character. He understood the character of those animals. And so when God names someone in Scripture, that name is descriptive of something in their character or something in their purpose. For instance, you remember God gives to Abram of old the name of Abraham. Why? Because he was a father of many nations. He gave the name Jacob, Israel. Why did he give him the name Israel? The prince who has power with God. Is what is meant by that. And of course, finding its fulfillment in Christ. Terash, Simon, the Lord gives the name Peter. When we look at Peter, we see anything but a solid rock. And yet, the Lord gives Simon the name Peter. Not because of what he was in himself, but because of what he would make him. What he would develop in him. And uh, he would become settled, firm, strong in faith, so that he would be indeed described as a rock. The meaning of the name Peter. The messenger of God, the angel, instructed Joseph to call the child that was born to Mary, to call him no man's child but the Son of God, and to call him by the name Jesus. Jesus is the Hellenized or Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. But the Lord was not called Joshua, he's called Jesus. 
It is the Hellenized form or Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua and a shortened form of the name Jehoshua in Scripture. So the shortened form is Joshua or Yeshua or Jeshua, Jesus being the Greek form, the verb of the meaning of the name is stressed, meaning he will certainly save. He will certainly save. The person to whom this name belongs, the Lord Jesus Christ, with all of its full meaning, he is himself his people's salvation. Knowing him is salvation, apart from whom there can absolutely be no salvation whatsoever. Neither is there salvation in any others, Peter said. There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Joshua, of course, you remember, was the leader of the Old Testament people of God. It was through his leadership that Canaan was conquered. And the people then became settled in the promised land. But Joshua of old was a picture, a type, a prefigurement of the one who was to come. Of course, they not only express prophecies in Scripture, they're picture prophecies, as it were, they're prefigurements. We used the one yesterday in uh, the service concerning the brass serpent, the snake, that was put upon a high pole so that those who were bitten by serpents could be healed. That, of course, we know, that strange method, was there because of what it would project to, that Christ crucified. So Moses represented the law. Moses could not enter Canaan. He died before entering Canaan. It was Joshua to whom God said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all the people, unto the land which I do give them, even to the children of Israel. Moses had died. God commands Joshua to bring the people into Canaan. So it was only Joshua and under his leadership alone that, quote, all the people with him, under him, led by him, would inherit the land of Canaan. You have to listen carefully. Though Joshua was a type of him who was to come, Bearing his name, there are some significant dissimilarities. Joshua, whose name means God is Savior, meant that Joshua was the instrument that God would use to bring his people, God's people, to their inheritance. The people, God's people, Joshua, was to bring into Canaan. In his case, this pointed away from himself. 
to an unseen hand, the real source of their victory, as has been said. The omnipotent source of their victory and was in one word an explanation of their whole history. With all its miraculous deliverance and perseverance or preservation of that handful of people against the powerful nations around. Yet, as we're convinced, it was Christ in pre-incarnation, which might be a bit too detailed to go there. You'll find in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, who met him before uh, Jericho, the city, and uh, he had to bow before him as he Moses had done at the burning bush and uh, because the place was holy and that was a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ himself to Joshua. But he who alone fulfills the full meaning of the name Joshua, Jesus, is God the Savior himself. Not simply one sent by God, though the Father did send the Son, but He is God the Savior Himself. Joshua of old was the instrument of God. Through Him, the people of Joshua uh, weren't said to be brought into Canaan, but the people of God. And they would be delivered and brought into their earthly inheritance. But there is a stark difference when Jesus, the Son of God, was manifest in the flesh. Joseph was told, He shall save His people from their sins. There's not simply a nuance there. It's a tremendous difference. He shall save his people from their sins. So you see, it's not merely Christ as an instrument through whom God will save. He shall save. He shall save. And not simply the people of God, but his people. He shall save his people from their sins. In Jesus, the Christ, the unique Son of God, the emphatic declaration of who He is brings us to the knowledge that God in His highest manifestation has come and has come to save. God in a way that He will be glorified for eternity has come and has been manifested, and He came to save His people from their sins. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We learn in 1 Timothy 1.15. And in that same epistle in the third chapter, we find out God was manifest in the flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, 
believed on, received up into glory. God's salvation, biblically called so great salvation. There's nothing we have in this world. There's nothing we could possess. There's nothing we could acquire. There was nothing we could have in any regard whatsoever greater than this so great salvation that God brings in Christ. Biblically, so great salvation. This salvation is of him who shall surely save his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus, the Christ, his incarnate name, Jesus, is a sovereign, absolute Lord. He accomplishes what he came to do. Nothing of what he came to do will fail. He is sovereign. He is over all things. We must say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. We don't know what the day may bring forth. We don't know when we'll leave this world. Our dear brother didn't think it was going to be as soon as it was. And uh, yet God in his mercy spared him a whole lot of suffering. That was to come. We don't know. We don't know how long we're going to be here. We don't know for sure that we'll be here tomorrow. We do not know what a day may bring forth. He alone did not have to say, if the Lord will. He who did not have to say, forgive me of my sins, for he had not any, did not have to say, if the Lord will. Why? Because he perfectly knew the will of the Father. He perfectly knew it from beginning to end. He knew every step he must take all the way to the cross. He says, as in Hebrews 10, 7, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. He would thus pray when the time came. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. It was the Father who in sovereign decree purposed salvation. He chose the great multitude out of every nation he would be pleased to save. And then he sent his own unique son to infallibly accomplish the work of redemption. The father sent the son to be the savior of the world, as in 1 John 4.14. His work was to redeem out of the world from every kindred, tribe, tongue, people, nation, a people who would constitute a new creation, a people who would be begotten of God, born anew in a spiritual sense, a people who would be the people of God, a people who would be delivered from this old bondage of this old creation. And eventually, we shall live in a new realm, a new world where there is no sin, where there is absolutely 
nothing that will detract from our serving our God and the most blessed condition that anyone could ever possibly consider. God is bringing into creation a new people, a people who shall inhabit a new heaven and new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. We can't even imagine what it's going to be like. God, through Jesus, His Son, would bring a new creation into existence, a new world, saved from sin, made holy, set apart from their profane life as had been in the world, and becoming for time and for eternity the people of God. As Peter could write in 1 Peter 2, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A peculiar people, actually. A peculiar people. That means a people specially set apart unto God, belonging to him. The people of God. There was a holy purpose. This holy purpose would be accomplished by him who shall save his people from their sins. And it's one that cannot fail. He saves. And saves only those he delivers from their sins. He shall save his people from their sins. You see, the messianic hope of the Jewish nation had been rather muddied. The mass of the nation were led by blind leaders of the blind. The pure stream of prophetic truth gradually polluted by the additions of men, clouded over, muddied by them until the salvation of God in their thinking was reduced to a mere deliverance from the Roman yoke. Salvation to them was a deliverance from foreign domination. And yet, even in this deadly error which led to their condemning to the cross, he who was only the only legitimate king of the Jews... In doing that, they fulfilled the perfect will of God. As Paul would later preach in a place called Pisidia of Antioch in Acts chapter 13. They fulfilled the very prophets they read every Sabbath day by condemning him to death. And he who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, who incredibly made himself of no reputation. He came into the world. The world was made by him. The world knew him not. He came into the world. He created. The world didn't know him. 
And he made himself of no reputation. Isn't that amazing? He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. And in doing so, he would become a stumbling block to those who thought only of power and glory for their nation. They only thought of a Messiah who would be world conquering, delivering them from all foreign domination and putting them on high over all nations. They never expected that the child who was born in, or the unborn child in Mary's womb, who would be born into a poor family, who as Isaiah wrote, had no beauty that we should desire him, who preached to the poor, who ate with publicans and sinners, who lived in poverty, they never expected a Messiah like this, nor would they accept a Messiah like this. That's why Peter says, this is the stone which would set it not of you builders. You see, he didn't fit their plans. He didn't fit the plans they had about their Messiah. This is the stone which was set it not of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. No. The scripture teaches us they stumbled at that stumbling stone. They stumbled at the lowliness of Christ's life. They stumbled at the lowliness of the conditions of his birth. They stumbled at the low condition of his family. They stumbled because he dared meet with sinners. But how many? How many false views of salvation? Still worldly and self-seeking in nature are those of a great number who profess to be Christians. <laughs> who make some kind of profession of faith. All of salvation all the salvation some hope for is a salvation that will help them out of earthly troubles. There's not a pastor on the face of the earth who has not at one time or another, maybe many times, faced those who are going through great difficulty. And they would come to church and they would come and make profession of faith. And then you come to find out if the difficulty passes, you don't see them again. Their salvation was that if God helps me out of this trouble, I'm in. If he helps me out of this condition, I'm in. And that's all the salvation that some would want. Or that he may give some promise of health and wealth. 
or that shall give them an easing of the fear of eternal punishment because there is a conscience that God put in man. He's uneasy. That's why he's scared to death of death. There are others still self-seeking, still enamored with their self-exalting hearts that end up in self-righteousness, thinking their own works put them in good stead with God that he must accept what they consider to be good. None of these. None of these will truly come to a death to self by the death of Christ. None of them will take up their cross to truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ because they've never come out of the fallen world. They've never come out of simply their own desires. And thus will never truly take up the cross to follow Christ. Yeah, man has a conscience of sin. But when he by his spirit convicts of sin, that's an entirely different matter. That's an entirely different thing. But his people, Christ's people, the people of the Lord Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. His people are the gift of the Father to the Son to redeem and to save. And they shall actually be saved from their sins. Not simply from outward problems and troubles in the world. Matter of fact, when one comes to Christ, there comes a whole new set of problems that they have with the world, they come out of. They come to a consciousness of sin against God. Now that's a solemn thing. You remember, I think, what, last week? I told you about David. David's horrendous sin with Bathsheba, then having her husband killed. That's Horrific. And there are those who condemn David and they get upset with him. I've had even heard preachers say that they just thought maybe they had a little too self-righteous because they were really upset with that. How could David do such a thing? Well, they didn't know their own hearts and what they were capable of. You and I are capable by nature, apart from the grace of God, of horrendous things. And when convicted of sin, that becomes a reality. Yeah, I'm sure David was broken over what he had done to Bathsheba and her husband. But when you hear his penitential prayer in Psalm 51, what do you hear him praying? Against thee. Crying to his God. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. As horrendous as it might be what we can do to each other. There's nothing so horrendous as sin against the living God. Nor dangerous. 
and the people in whom God works come to the consciousness of sin against Him. That they deserve nothing good from His hand. And should they perish, it's only the just retribution of their own wicked hearts and lives. And in some way, they'll be brought to cry, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm lost. I'm a sinner. The best I can do. No better than filthy rags. It's they, they only, sinners, whom Jesus, who is the Christ, came to save. And they come to know who He is. They come to know why He came. And they come to know what He did to save them from their sins. He who came from eternity into time, who created the heavens and the earth, who was with the Father and was manifested unto us, was born in this world in order to become one with us that He might take our place before God the Father in order to die the death we earned, we merited, though He had never sinned, so that He might put away our sins as far as the East is from the West. Oh, those seven centuries before, it was prophesied of Him in Isaiah 53. He shall see of the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied by His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You know, I can remember in the early days when God called me to himself and showed me the wondrousness that his own son was sent into this world and that Jesus Christ, his son, took all the punishment for my sin on the cross and died for me. I could not get away from that and I don't want to get away from that. I don't ever want to get away from that. I don't want ever to forget this is the only reason I know the living God. He came into this world to save a sinner like me. A sinner. One who turned his own way. One who was vile. And yet, he died the death Justice would have meted out for me. And calls me by His grace. And calls you by His grace. And says, this is how much I love you. This is my grace to you. Who else would have prayed in the most horrendous condition of suffering and pain and sorrow, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. And he didn't come to save his people in their sins. 
He came to save his people from their sins. From the eternal penalty of sin. Because as a song we sometimes sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And we can read there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. He came to save from the power of sin. Because by grace, He gives us His Holy Spirit. Everyone He redeems. Everyone for whom He offered His blood and called by His grace. And who come to know Him and are given up in faith, no longer to belong to themselves, but to say with Paul, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Every one of his own have been given then his Holy Spirit also through the cross to lead us into a different life, a life of holiness, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They are God's children. And that comes through redemption. Even with our battle with sin day by day. Oh, that's a hard thing for one who is saved by God's grace, who comes to know Christ. Because it seems like, you know, when we first come to know Him, we're just all taken up with Him and all this wondrousness of salvation. And we kind of all don't realize we still have this sinful problem in our flesh that we've got to battle with and fight with. And then it shows up. The sin is still in the flesh. We still had a battle with it. But the difference is it is the most grievous thing there is to a true child of God. No longer is it delighted in and loved. It becomes horrendous. And yet God gives us in His Word a constant recourse to His blood for continual cleansing. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us. That means it continually does. Cleanseth us from all sin. He's our salvation. He's the reason for forgiveness and cleansing. And then finally, those who are saved from the penalty of sin, those who are saved from the power of sin, they're going to be saved forever from the presence of sin. We cannot imagine a sinless world. But there will be one. And there shall in no case no wise anything that defileth that enters into it. No more the effects of sin. No more what sin has brought into the world. For God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any uh, uh, pain, for the former things are passed away. They're forever passed away. And God will have completed His work in us. Forming us into the image of His Son. 
and we get a glimpse and a little bit of the joys and glories of knowing Christ now. But we can't even comprehend what it's going to be in that day when God who sustains and keeps us shall give us exceeding joy as we're promised. So, hear the word of God. This is God's word. God's hand is stretched out to you. Stretching it out. It's been stretched out to some for a long time. His hand is stretched out. His voice is calling you. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as snow. He called you to turn from self and selfishness and to call upon him while he is near. To look away from yourself and only to him who died and rose again. Whose blood alone cleanses from sin. And in sorrow for your sins and a desire to be rid of their condemning power. Look to him. Look to him only. Believe him only. Just as yesterday even in the message at Jimmy's service. The serpent on the pole was lifted because those who had transgressed against and murmured against God were being bitten by venomous snakes. And God puts the pole up and he says, the only way you're going to be healed is to look at that pole. It's look or perish. It's look or perish. And the Lord Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't say get everything all straightened out and fixed up and bring all your gifts and do some righteousness and see if I'll accept it. No. Isaiah 45. I think it's 45, 22. Look unto me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Do you know who said those words? A pre-incarnate Christ. And now he says, Look to me. Crucified. For sinners. To me alone. Then you can claim the same victory that Paul the Apostle could claim in Romans chapter 8 and verses 33 and 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also maketh intercession for us. If this is true of you, the cost of following Christ will not be too high. 
because your heart will have a faith-filled purpose, yea, to be thine, yea, thine alone. O Lamb of God, I come. And he clicked off. I need this clicked off. So, and we'll, we'll sing uh, a hymn. Sometimes the hymn is misused. <laughs> 